Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're talking to Nithya Raman, who's running to represent L.A. City Council District 4. So how are you doing this morning, Nithya? I am good. I think I mentioned I was a little tired, <laughs> but uh, mostly because of my kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very understandable. My two-year-old nephew really, like, he doesn't understand sleep and the importance of it, um, which is cute. Uh, but I wanted to start off a little bit before the campaign. So before you did this, you were, you were the executive director for Time's Up. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that campaign and what it was that y'all were organizing for. Yeah. So I was actually the direct executive director of Time's Up Entertainment, which mm-hmm. is one. It was so the way that Time's Up. Let me take one more step back. Sure. Time's Up came out of this Me Too moment that exploded through Hollywood and then mm-hmm. through the rest of the world, um, and it was. You know, I think it was a really exciting moment for so many women uh, in particular, but I think so many people who've experienced sexual misconduct and abuse, and they were able to finally feel like they could speak up about it. Time's Up was the organization that was formed out of that moment. Mm -hmm. It started in Hollywood, and the part that I ran was an industry affiliate that was supposed to help – entertainment industry workplaces move towards safer and more equitable places for women of all kinds. And the women of all kinds umbrella was a phrase that, you know, I think they were struggling with wanting to make it as inclusive as possible. So that was kind of the phrase that the organization came up with was women of all kinds, but it's meant to be anyone who doesn't identify as a man basically was what we were fighting for um, in terms of safety and equity at the workplace uh, in the entertainment industry. And I know that had some impact on where I was working because I mentioned I worked for Defy Media. My boss was Andy Signore, uh, who was the Screen Junkies guy who, uh, yes, yeah, April Wolf published a whole expose on it. I was there like when that all went down and it was a big sea change. And to see that really like filtered down into where the work was actually being done in Hollywood. How did that impact your workplace? Like what kind of day-to-day impacts did it have? Well, we we lost our executive uh, producer and head of the channel like immediately. Uh, things began to change where like uh, uh, allegations and uh, discussions of like misconduct were taken much more seriously because that was one of the other things that came out was none of these stories were isolated. It wasn't Andy did one bad thing. It was Andy had been doing bad things for years and everyone had brushed it aside, you know, pushed under the rug. Max Landis also got caught up in that. Um, he was disinvited from coming back to Defy because of allegations that were lodged by coworkers years ago that suddenly were given credibility. Um, and it was taken very seriously. Like I had a whole, you know, phone call with their HR and their legal. Uh, but it was an interesting, very quick change that I saw. Did you notice that, like in that organizing? Did you see a real impact in the work you were doing in Hollywood? Yeah. I. So I think one of the things that, one of the things that people always talked to, wanted to talk to me about, particularly in private, was about gray areas, mm. was about he said, she said, was about, you know, are all of these stories true? Is everything absolutely accurate? And I think they looked to me as someone who was involved with Time's Up, as someone who could help litigate each of those situations. And my view about all of this was really not that, not that these questions are easy to answer mm-hmm. about you know, questions around power, questions around p- consent, um, questions around what is appropriate for workplace behavior. I think these are these are incredibly difficult questions to answer. But I think the importance of that moment came from the fact that we were finally asking those questions. Mm-hmm. Those were questions that people who had faced misconduct in the workplace, who had faced workplace harassment, were struggling with in silence mm-hmm. and were made to feel like they had to do that in order to survive in the workplace. 
particularly in Hollywood workplaces, where so many people are freelancers, even if they belong to a union, they're really going from job to job. And their next job depends on them having a good reputation from their last job. Mm -hmm. And so there was not really a climate where you could step forward with a complaint about an individual, even if you felt incredibly violated because of that behavior. And I thought this was an incredibly important thing to be able to talk about and to tell people who were facing that kind of workplace misconduct that their complaints about that were legitimate and that they had every right to step forward and that they wouldn't be penalized for stepping forward. Um, and I do think it had, a, it had a really, really big impact. It reverberated throughout the industry. Um, and I think both large and small workplaces were really grappling with it in, in a major way. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about, and this kind of ties into uh, bringing things to the forefront, giving voice to people who are silenced, is your work with CELA. And I know you're one of the folks who helped uh, found them and get them off the ground. Uh, you'll have to apologize. I have to apologize. I can never remember what the acronym stands it's for. It's okay. It's terrible. I think we sh probably should have named it differently. <laughs> but, but yeah, tell us about uh, what brought you to doing that and the work you all have been doing because it's been really amazing work. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I co-founded CELA with a few other neighbors in um, a, a couple of years ago, probably two, almost three years ago now. Initially, it wasn't a nonprofit. We set up as a nonprofit uh, recently, but initially what we were responding to was that there was an increasingly large number of people experiencing homelessness in our neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods. I live in Silver Lake. Uh, some of the other co-founders come from Los Feliz, but it was a group of us across that whole region, stretching from Los Feliz, all, you know, all of the communities along the river where there's a large number of encampments, Atwater, Echo Park, um, Cypress Park, Glassell Park. All of people in, in those neighborhoods noticed that there was an increasingly large number of people experiencing homelessness in those neighborhoods, places where there hadn't been encampments before, where there hadn't been people sleeping on the streets before. And I think they felt unable to respond or 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 rather they felt like they didn't have ways to respond to be able to help neighbors um in their own neighborhood i mean i think there were volunteer opportunities downtown there were there were ways to kind of go to a mission or go to places in hollywood but this was happening right in their backyards and they didn't know how to respond to it so that's really the impetus that sila came out of and so what we first started doing was that we wanted to get to know our neighbors experiencing homelessness so we met up, uh, we would meet up at a coffee shop, we'd bring bottles of water, we'd bring breakfast bars and, you know, hard-boiled eggs and oranges. Just little essentials that people yeah, need. Yeah. yeah, and then just walk around to, to or, or drive to, to encampments throughout that region. So we'd visit anywhere from 25 to 40 encampments and say hello to people, hand out what we had, and see what, what, what they were experiencing and what they needed. And what we realized as we were doing that work was that in that region of the city, particularly when we started, uh, and, and it, even now, I would say, they once you were experiencing homelessness in that neighborhood, it was almost impossible to get the resources you needed to get off of the street. There were no outreach workers that were going out regularly to visit those encampments. If you wanted a shower or a shelter bed that you could walk into, if you wanted a cup of coffee, if you wanted just to go to a place where you could feel welcomed, there was really not a place in that entire area, that entire stretch of the city, which is an enormous part of the city, where somebody experiencing homelessness could actually go and have their basic needs met or start their journeys off of the streets, right? Build those relationships with caseworkers, build those relationships with mental health 
you know, health workers or health workers of any kind to really start their journeys off the streets. Those resources were simply not available in our neighborhoods. And so then we, we, we continued to do SELA and we formalized it as a nonprofit um, because we felt like as a group of residents, we were able to advocate for those needs and actually in some ways put them together ourselves. Um, we started a once a week drop-in center essentially at one of the churches in our, in our neighborhood where we have showers, a hot meal, we show a movie on a projector. <laughs> um, we have, uh, we had yoga for a little while there. It wasn't terribly popular, so we got rid of it <laughs> for the moment. Um, but we essentially created a space that could address some of those needs. We, we, um, we found, uh, we created a partnership with a local service provider and had a case manager come every week to that event. And that, that, this kind of place where people could start building those relationships of trust, uh, you know, we, we made that happen from, from our own work. And it was, it's been really an incredible process to be Yeah, no, it's really amazing. And also seeing the impact that y'all are having and the impact that uh, it spawned for smaller community activist groups and organizers like K-Town for All. I know Ground Game, like we're all kind of rooted in this idea of community empowerment and doing what we can do. And I wanted to talk now about the campaign and about what those organizing experiences with Time's Up and with SELA are bringing to your campaign and how that's kind of like informing the way you're building this. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the very premise of the campaign is about is about what you can do locally to make change. I think we have an incredible moment right now in America. We have a huge amount of political organizing and energy at the national level, trying to fight Trump, trying to fight, you know, I think some of these incredibly divisive forces, anti-immigrant actions and rhetoric, racism at the national level. And in California, in Los Angeles, I think people feel helpless watching this because they feel like, what can I do to impact those big questions? And the premise of the campaign and and the reason we're running it the way we are is to say, there is so much work to be done locally to achieve those same goals of being welcoming, of helping vulnerable residents to thrive, of making this into a city where every person who comes in is able to feel welcomed and to and to live the best lives that they can. We have so much work to do in Los Angeles to meet those goals and to invite people to join us in that journey. The fight that K-Town for All has been fighting, the fight that SELA has been fighting, the fight that Ground Game has been fighting, and so many other groups across Los Angeles have been fighting. This campaign is really about saying the city is a place where we can do that work. And I want to tell you about the power of city council to help us achieve those goals and join us in fighting that fight and trying to reform our city council to make sure that they're pushing for that. And we do have an incredible opportunity in this particular election, which is why I chose to run at this time, because this is the first time that a municipal election in Los Angeles is lining up with a federal election. And so you had a you had a time when L.A. municipal elections had incredibly low voter turnout. Oh, in, I think with Garcetti's last election, he won like eight and a half percent of the electorate overall. It was like a 13 percent turnout, something insanely low like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know the exact numbers on that race, but I, that doesn't surprise me at all. You know, it, it has been an incredibly low voter turnout city for a long time for municipal and local races. And I think at this for this Democratic primary where so many people are so invested in the future of who's going to be running against Trump, we have an opportunity to have 
you know, triple or quadruple the amount of voters coming out to vote in that March 3rd primary, that is an incredible boon for our municipal election. So we have an opportunity to say to a whole new set of municipal voters, you want to vote your values? You have to care about the city, and here's why, and here's who you can vote for. And so that's really been the premise of the campaign and how we're running it. And and what we've been doing is really going door to door. We've been canvassing since we started, basically. Uh, we've built a really good field team of paid canvassers. We've, uh, we have so much volunteer support. Every weekend, we have anywhere from 20 to 40 people volunteering for us, going out knocking on doors across all of the neighborhoods in the district. And our message is really one of respect for voters. Mm -hmm. We go to doors, we tell them about the race, we tell them about the power of council, and we invite them to join us in our fight. We've also been doing that in other ways. So we've really been trying to up the level of communication that a city council campaign has with the public. Mm -hmm. And we're using every tool at our disposal to do that. So we've been doing really fun videos. My launch video is watched over a quarter of a million times on it's you know it's amazing that level of engagement just doesn't happen for traditional city council campaigns we've done videos um, related to different policy releases we've actually released detailed policies we did one on housing and homelessness we did one on the environment we're going to be releasing one on immigration next week um, then we're going to be doing one on um, women's rights and racial equity in January we're really trying to push the envelope in terms of the detail and the richness of the communications that we have with voters before a city council election and trying to say we want to root this in a really clear vision of what we would do when we're in office. And I, and, I actually and, want to transition to that yeah. uh, because you, you, I went out, I was canvassing with you, uh, canvassing for you uh, up in Hollywood. I think we, I was with uh, Steve and we finally finished off like that turf and Amazing. getting to move to the valley. And it was a really good reception, um, which I've, I've really enjoyed – um, especially canvassing for Democrats here and up in the valley in places that aren't traditionally seen as like kind of progressive strongholds. Yeah. But for the folks that are knocking on doors for you, for the folks that are coming out to vote for you, what is it you're fighting for? Like when you get to city council, what are the policies that you really want to champion? I know some of it's on your literature and everything. But yeah. For folks who may not be familiar, folks who want more sure. in-depth vision of like what it is that you want to do. Well, so I think broadly speaking – um, I think one of the biggest issues in the city is our housing and homelessness crisis, and they're linked. And so we have a vision for how we can respond to this crisis, which treats it at the level of urgency that it deserves to be treated. Um, so on homelessness, right now we have a city that is not designed to get people the services that they need. And so we've proposed a network of city-funded access centers in every neighborhood where people can do exactly what we did in SELA in our neighborhood – where you can come in, take a shower, and build a relationship with a case manager. This would also fundamentally reshape how we do outreach in the city. So for many years, we had almost no outreach happening in the city. Now we do through Measure H because we've paid for more services. We have a lot more outreach workers going out. But the way that outreach is done right now, we're not doing outreach while also looking at outcomes because – Contracts are given out, and based on the volume of contacts that you make with people experiencing homelessness, okay. if you build neighborhood-level systems where outreach workers are housed at neighborhood hubs, and they know everybody in the neighborhood who's experiencing homelessness, and they are held accountable for moving people along that path to getting housed, 
that is a much more powerful and effective way of spending outreach dollars than what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. So we're, it's, we're really changing the way, we envision a real change in the way that we're doing kind of services, service provision in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think that's interesting, especially with some of the changes Loss has been going through. Um, their their president obviously left. Um, but even before that, they began ma- making major changes, a lot of hires, but we still seem to be based around like the Loss offices in downtown. And you will drive out to an encampment once a week and you'll talk to folks and they're probably not going to trust you. And they're going to move you to a different turf. So that's a radically transformative policy. And it does seem rooted in the work you've been doing with SELA. What about for house folks, people who are who are burdened by rent? Because we know here in L.A., about 60 percent of us pay more than 30 percent of our monthly income in rent. And it's, you know, I've been crushed by that myself. Yeah. So for renters, I think related to the homelessness crisis, I think we need to stop the flood of people falling into homelessness. Right. So that's a major concern. So I think anything you do to support renters is actually going to help you on homelessness as well. Mm-hmm. So it, we need to be acting on protecting tenants um, no matter what for the good of our residents, but also because I think it will help our homelessness crisis. Our housing crisis is also transforming who gets to live in the city. Yes. You know, it it is changing L.A. from a place where you could come here and build your dreams, whether you're a creative, whether you're coming from another country, um, whether you're coming from another part of, the, uh, of America. Mm-hmm. And so I think in order we need to address our affordable housing crisis in order to preserve LA as as still a place of opportunity for all. And so what I propose in my policy is really to use all the tools that LA has at its disposal to do that. One, we can do much better at preventing evictions of people right now. Um, in a really tight housing market, um, at a time when landlords really want higher rents, Evictions are a really big issue, and I think we should be providing a right to counsel for everyone who's in danger of eviction, and we should also be doing better at making sure people have access to rental assistance in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. So right now, rental assistance is only available to the very poorest of the poor, Um, and actually a much broader swath of people lose their homes because of a job loss, temporary job loss, because of a divorce, because of a health crisis then fall into that very lowest income band. And it's far cheaper to give people a couple of months of rental assistance and keep them in their house than to try and get them off the streets once they've already lost their home. Mm -hmm. So these are two things that we could be doing to prevent people from falling into homelessness. Also, there is an incredible, incredible increase in rents over the past, you know, two decades in Los Angeles. Um, They did a study which found that Renter income went up by 32% while median, oh, sorry, rent uh, rents went up by 32% over a 15-year period, while median renter wages actually fell by 3%. Mm-hmm. So the variation between what people are paying and what people are earning is so massive right now. It is a crushing burden for residents of Los Angeles. But L.A. City actually controls something like 80% of rental units, apartments, mm-hmm. through the rent stabilization ordinance. They can actually say that instead of having a minimum floor increase of 3% every year, which is what the rent stabilization ordinance says, mm-hmm. you could actually make it a freeze, a rent freeze for two years or three years, just a temporary freeze until we were out of this housing crisis, mm-hmm. right? Until we were able to build more units, until we were able to house more of the people who were actually experiencing homelessness. This is something that the city council could do tomorrow, and that's what we're proposing in in our in our plan. 
Um, you could also tie, instead of having the rent stabilization ordinance, tie rental increases to inflation. You could actually tie it to real wage increases. Ha, that, so that, that would be radical. Yeah, so that rents really only go up when your wages go up. Um, instead of, you know, I think right now what is really unfair levels of increases. I, I also want to ask, so city council has a not undeserved reputation for being very, very friendly with developers. Um, you know, for a while, L.A. was the capital city for cranes in the entire U.S. We had like a half dozen more than the next closest city. But we're not building stuff that people can afford. And a lot of this gets laid at the feet of city council for approving these developments. What would you like to see changed in that process? What would you like to see happen to new developments? Because we do need to build new stuff. A lot of housing stock is old and needs updates. So how do we encourage that while also making sure that LA stays affordable? So I want to just drill down into those numbers for a moment because I think the numbers are really shocking. We did some research on what was being approved in LA over the last five years. And something like 87% of new housing stock across the city that's been permitted is market rate or luxury housing. And only 13% is affordable. In the district where I'm running, District 4, only 7% was affordable. It's 93% market rate or luxury housing. To me, looking at the city and looking at what we need, looking at the massive under... Um, uh, the, the lack of stock of affordable housing units, that proportion should look really, really different. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, and that's incredibly frustrating. Um, but city council controls so much of what is built and what is not built in Los Angeles. Uh, and they also control an incredible amount of land in the city. Mm -hmm. and, and they also control zoning. And so they have a number of tools at their disposal to be able to shift that percentage in ways that are beneficial for residents. So one thing that they could do um, is to really think about changing our zoning code so that the kind of housing that's produced is inherently more affordable to residents. So one of the reasons why we have, um, I think one of the many reasons why we have a, a homelessness crisis right now is because we've seen a loss in single-room occupancy hotels, which have been redeveloped into apartments or um, other kinds of housing, um, we could actually reshape our zoning code to make units, dormitory-style units, mm -hmm. with shared bathrooms and shared kitchens legal on plots across the city. That's something that a council member could do. They could identify plots throughout the city, make it so that dormitory-style housing is by right for those units, and invite developers to come in, nonprofit developers, yeah. to come in and build on those units to build the kind of housing that would be inherently affordable mm -hmm. because people aren't going to bid up the price of a unit that doesn't have a bathroom or a kitchen, <laughs> you know. Um, you could also do things like uh, actually invest in public housing again. You could re uh, purchase old buildings, you could rehab them, and actually build up our public housing stock in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Um, you would essentially be creating through city funds more units that would be available for residents who can't afford them. Mm -hmm. um, you could also um, well, I'm blanking on what I what I was going to say. Um, anyway, we 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 lay out a number of strategies. Oh, um, the other thing I was going to say was that a lot of units right now that are being built in the city are high rise units. Mm -hmm. 
And I think part of it, a lot of the development tools that have been used to try and increase the number of affordable housing units or to increase the number of housing units across the city have been really targeted at high-rise buildings. And I also want to think about increasing density in places which are smaller Mm -hmm. because who the people who are investing in high-rise units are in large developers. Yeah. So even if you get a few affordable housing units in those because you have some measure of inclusionary zoning, some 15 to 25 percent, let's say, that you need in order to be able to get that planning permission to build that high-rise, that's not going to generate the volume of units that you need in order to actually address the need in terms of affordable housing. So I think thinking about smart changes which actually increase density in uh, in, in certain neighborhoods, particularly transit-adjacent neighborhoods, without necessarily changing building heights, so making it legal to build four units where there was a single-family home or making it legal to build three units where there was a single-family home, these are ways that you can increase density without having the need for a big developer to come in and invest in a property. These can be local property owners that can invest in their own homes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's actually really interesting because it can actually keep money local. You know, like who is building and who is benefiting from our real estate economy is an important question to be asking. And I think if we can design our zoning code in ways that residents can benefit from it, and produce the kind of housing that addresses that missing middle, you know, housing for teachers, housing for editors, housing yeah. for um, nurses that we just don't have in our economy, which these units would be. I do think that that's something that's really worth thinking about, which L.A. has done a little bit through the accessory dwelling unit legislation. Yeah. But we could do a lot more of it. And there's so many places in the city which is ripe for this kind of yeah. You know, this kind of densification. Uh, a book I rep a lot because I just think it's really good is Samuel Stein's Capital City, which is just all about the investment mechanism that's brought us to this point right. where, like, we have, you know, I don't think L.A. suffers as much from the, like, pedetaire thing as, like, London does necessarily. But who's building what is tied to what they're able to profit from um, to kind of pivot a little bit. But on the same point. Uh, L.A. City Council uh, just recently went through a change. Herb Wesson obviously terming out, so he's going to be leaving the council. Uh, He just passed the presidency over to Nuri Martinez, only the second woman to ever be president of the council, uh, I believe, the first Latina woman, one of only two women on the council. What changes are you hoping to see post-March for city council? Like what – you talked earlier about this being a really important election, and it seems like that's shaping up in a lot of ways, some of them coincidental, some of them almost engineered. But, like, what are you hoping to see? Uh, well, so there's women candidates running across the across the city, mm-hmm. and so I'm hoping that we have more women in office. I think that's really important for L.A. It's really important for L.A., particu- not just because of city council having so few women, but I think there's 18 elected reps in the city, mm-hmm. including the mayor, the controller, the attorney, and, and only two are women, you know, which is really uh, absurd. Um, and I do think it's time to see more women in council. I, th- I think that's really important no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's definitely one of the big, big changes that I think I'm excited about. Yeah. And I hope comes through. That would be amazing. I think that we are seeing a moment. And I again, this is – maybe this is – Maybe this is too optimistic, but I do think that with the kind of support that progressive candidates are seeing in the presidential race mm-hmm. um, and the excitement over a more progressive vision for America that's emerged from this 
Democratic primary, I do think that we have a lot of people who are excited about getting involved in municipal politics. And I do think that we will see some of these national issues like um, like the Homes Guarantee, you know, or um, Medicare for All. I do think that we'll see those issues reflected in local politics. And we'll see a push towards whether, I mean, obviously healthcare is not managed by the city, but I do think that the, the, the values that underlie these kinds of pushes, the, the assumptions that underlie it, that not everything should be governed by market forces, that people have an inherent right to housing, that people have an inherent right to healthcare, that people have an inherent right to live a dignified life. These are things that need pushes at the city level. We need to work on it. We have for way too long been focused on two kinds of things, protecting single family home property values and protecting the profits of real estate in this industry, in this city. That's what city council has really been kind of defined by, I would say. And now we have an opportunity to really change those priorities, right? And 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 oh, oh my gosh, I forgot the biggest one, climate. You know, the the focus, the national focus on climate change and how every candidate has been forced to answer those questions. We have both, you know, just a, an incredible failure at the city level to push people to use public transit, to use non-motorized forms of transit, to get out of their cars in a state where 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from transport. So really, this is this is a chance to get those priorities at the national level where that people are organizing around, that people are feeling a sense of urgency around, that people are going to protests about, and make sure that our city council feels that same urgency. And I think that will happen no matter who ends up winning these races. You know, I think that just the fact that candidates are running that are talking about public housing, that are talking about a right to housing, that are talking about a Green New Deal in ways that are more um, substantive and more urgent than what the city is talking about right now, I think that's going to transform the city. Um, and I feel very, very lucky and um, privileged to be part of that moment and that movement. Um, you know, it's 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 really exciting. I, I think you're very right there. And I feel that a lot. I do a lot of work with Sunrise Movement and a lot of other groups that have been like pushing the urgency of climate change, but also seeing this as a larger intersectional struggle. And one of the things I've noticed as we went through this conversation is it seems like the through line is that you have been really successful at creating and seizing space, especially in this new public conversation we're having. So for my last question, I want to ask, what advice do you have to folks out there who are thinking about how they can do that? Like, what do they need to do to start making the change and being the change they want to see in the world? I think the through line for my work, I can't speak to everybody, um, is I, I really believe that if you give people an opportunity to choose compassion and to, choo and to choose compassion in an active way, in a way that allows them to give back in their own neighborhoods or in their own backyards or in their own city, and you make it really easy for them to do that, they will do that over and over again. We have been in Sila so amazed by the willingness of people to come back, to donate, to volunteer, to spend their weekends and evenings cooking for people, collecting donations for people, 
donating from their own pockets. And we've been the beneficiary of that incredible love from residents. And I think part of the failure of council, of all of our elected reps here in L.A., is that they don't give us spaces to show that love for each other. And both Sila and the campaign, to me, are really just that, you know, a place where people can get together and say we believe in one another and we will fight for each other. And because we've made that space available, people are showing up in droves, you know, and it's it's really beautiful to witness. It's been really, really incredible. I think that's a really good note to end on. And thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more, you can check out nithiaforthecity.com. Get involved, donate, volunteer. Uh, I'm going to rep the donation thing because grassroots campaigns run on shoestring budgets. Every dollar really, really helps. And it's also a way, if you don't have time, your money is just a valid way to like help get volunteers taken care of, make sure that the staff gets paid, make sure this campaign takes it over the finish line. Nithia, thank you very much again. Thank you so much. 